Hello and welcome to Creativity Uncovered. My name is Abby Gatling and I'm on a journey to uncover how everyday people find inspiration, get inventive and open their imagination. Basically, I want to find out how people can find creative solutions and then how do they use those solutions at home, work, play and everything in between. Basically, my goal for this podcast is that by the end of it, you'll be armed with a whole suite of tried and tested ways to summon creativity the next time that you need it. Today, I am speaking with Amber Danes, who is a podcaster, a crisis communications expert, media trainer, and an award-winning journalist. She's basically a PR extraordinaire. Um, But, you know, when I say PR or crisis management, um, creativity is not exactly the first word that pops into my brain. So what is the link to creativity? Well, I mean, let's find out. Welcome, Amber. Thanks so much for having me. Ah, my pleasure. (laughs) So I sort of mentioned PR before. But, you know, there might be some people out there who actually um, have never even come across the term public relations or PR. What What is that? Can you give us a quick overview? How I define public relations, really broadly speaking, is it's all forms of communication which are designed to influence, amplify, or change people's opinions. So usually people think public relations in terms of traditional media, so that might be TV, radio, online news, but also that incorporates social media, video, webinars, podcasts, everything that you can think of. So it's about having your public image, whether you're an organisation or an individual, curated and amplified in a way in which aligns with your values and your offering. Mm, okay. So it's, yeah, really just kind of working alongside with your brand and managing your reputation. Absolutely. It's all part of that same family, if you like, or ecosystem. Yes. And your specialty area is crisis management. And crisis I do love a crisis, <laughs> which I don't know what it says about me, but. Uh... <laughs> yes, very odd. <laughs> no, but, but what, what is crisis management and how did you, how did you choose that? I don't know if it chose it or it chose me. And I say that because um, my early career, I was a journalist and then I moved into corporate communications around 18 years ago. And so back then I did kind of did everything. I found my sweet spot in corporate communications and business to business PR. But I really found that ex-journalist in me still loved when a story or an idea broke, when there was a bit of a scandal or an issue or reputational matter. And so I ended up just becoming part of a team that was involved in that. And then as I sort of moved into my own business about 13 years ago, I didn't really start off in that way. I was really a small business PR B2B person. That's kind of how I pitched myself. But then I found myself kind of getting attracted back into crisis and issues management because as I say to all clients, at some time, any time in your business, whether you're doing well or you're not doing so well, there will be an issue or a crisis which you either can control or you've generated and you need to know how to manage that. So I think of crisis comms as an integral part of any PR strategy and you hope you're not going to have to use that action plan, 
But you do need to think about it um, as part of your PR because you can't assume times are always going to be good. For example, you know, you might have a product recall, which is beyond your control, or you might have a, a staffing issue, which becomes bigger than Ben-Hur and gets played out in the media or social media. So understanding the triggers of crisis is something which I educate all my clients on, even if they never need to use it. Right. Okay. So you mentioned a couple of different types of crises there. Is that typically where you come across like a, a recall or something like that? Oh, look, it could be anything. Like some examples are I've worked uh, with, you know, banks during the Banking Royal Commission of a few years ago where they had a lot of public high-profile scandals which were really systemic in in a system. So that's sort of bigger than just the organisation. That's kind of a whole of industry issue. But you might have an individual business who unfortunately, you know, gets caught up by proxy in a scandal. So, for example, they might have a brand ambassador that they've paid and uh, that brand ambassador, something untoward gets involved in some kind of sex scandal or a drug scandal or something of fraud or anything and just by association your brand becomes involved in the crisis even if you're not the cause of the crisis so it really could be Mm. anything and another example could be just I mean the real definition of crisis is when the rubber hits the road so I always say to people it's like planes blowing up in a terrorist attack it's you know a tragedy such as you know a ship sinking or something where there's actually that 24 hours of complete panic but usually there's a loss of life or money or both that's kind of how I define it wow okay and so there are different ways of trying to manage these crises Look, there are, there are sort of stages of a crisis and I always say to people because a lot of people come to me and say, well, I'm in this crisis, can you make it go away? And it's like, well, you actually have to go through the crisis and navigate the comms accordingly. So, you know, particularly that first 12 hours or even two hours sometimes now with social media, it's stage one, which is like your fact-finding where everyone's trying to find out who, what, when, why and how this happened um, and what's, you know, who's who's kind of involved. And then, you know, very quickly it moves to stage two, which is like your unfolding drama where you get whistleblowers or, you know, people who are witnesses or people commenting that this has happened before and coming forward. And then you've kind of got stage three, which is blame, where everyone's kind of like who was at fault and that's where the lawyers come in and it all becomes a little bit like, you know, you might see it play out in a court case, for example like the defamation case we just saw with Ben Robert Smith, for example. And then stage four is kind of your fallout. And that's where the dust settles. There might be a finding in a court case. There might be a product recall where you've had to compensate people. There might be the data breaches we've experienced and you have to go through the regulatory changes to your data and privacy um, of, of all your customers and communicate that. And then after that, that's when you can do reputation or rebuild. And a lot of people think they can skip all that and go straight to it wasn't me, it's not my fault, how can you make me look good? And that's really not what Crisis Comms does. What Crisis Comms does is it kind of supports you as you go through those four stages. Mm, And get back on track at the end of it. Exactly, if you can. I mean, sometimes businesses don't survive, but individuals can definitely be on a road to redemption um, if they do the right things and, you know, obviously they they communicate that well. Yes. And so... Why do you need creativity in this line of work? How do you find creativity in this process? Creativity, I think, is comes down to individuals. We're all creative in some way. Even if you don't think you are, you might work, you know, in a big four bank and think, I'm not creative. But creativity is around how you use ideas and communicate those to reach your audience. So the creativity comes into probably not just the messaging and delivering that in in an appropriate way, whether that be through a webinar or maybe a video or social media tweets and so forth, but actually thinking 
creatively about who matters most and how you're going to keep communicating with them because you're trying to, in some ways, rebuild trust at some point. So the creativity piece is really the fact that, yes, there's a formula for crisis, but every business is different. Every CEO is different. Everyone responds differently and has a different risk appetite as you go through this process as well. So it's really about you've got your formula that you regularly follow of stage one, two, three, four, but applying the lens of the business and the context of the business is where the creativity comes in because it's sort of being a bit lateral in your thinking and making it fit the situation. Absolutely. I love the fact you use lateral as kind of the word because problem solving sits alongside lateral thinking, I think, in crisis management. So, you know, very much it's about thinking inside the box in the beginning and sticking to some rules so it'll get you there but then as you kind of settle into the pattern of your your crisis what is it that we can be doing better and getting feedback so a lot of people forget that communications is not a one-way street it's about engagement so is that message landing to those people that maybe feel wronged and, and sort of you know the victims if you like in a story do they actually feel like they're being heard and they're being remediated so allowing your creativity to come into everything you do will be really important and that really comes down to just listening as well as telling I think a lot of people think it's about what you say and what you do but sometimes it's just about the audience feeling like they're being heard as well. Mm, I think that's a really important part of that it's like not going in going I know the solution to this I know how we're going to make this go away or you know get back on track it's about um, having an open mind and, and listening to the different players in this situation, I, I think that's a huge part of creativity is having that open mind and not just jumping to the first solution. Or something you've done before, like it's very easy to kind of have like, you know, I've got those stages, but then going, well, what did that company do in this situation? Let's follow that. Like it's some rule book. And I think, well, communications evolves and channels evolve and, you know, tech evolves. So why would you not try something that's of its time as well and actually be open to doing something you've never done before? And for some organizations, it's as simple as actually saying, sorry, they may never have done that before, you know, and there might be a big established company who's always on the front foot. And for them, even issuing an apology without admission of guilt can be a huge thing. And that takes creativity and courage together. Oh, yes. I'd say a lot of courage. And that would be very impactful because I feel like we don't see that a lot. There's a lot of downplaying of what these crises are and who's at fault and all that sort of stuff. But sometimes it's like, oops, we actually made a mistake and now we're better off for it because we won't do that again. Exactly. And as long as you can demonstrate you've learned from the mistake and that you're remedying the situation in a humanistic way, the way in which the people that might be the victims feel is is enough or at least on the road to recovery, I think that puts you in good stead. Yes. And you mentioned social media before. I, I can imagine that, you know, back in the day, prior to everyone having a social account, you would have time to work through this process and have a really nice clean, clear, curated response to an issue. But now you don't have the benefit of time because it gets out on social media and it'll be everywhere within a couple of minutes. Has that changed your practice at all? It's changed everything because all of us, every one of us as citizens, if you like, or consumers, can be a journalist. Like how many times do you see the news and they've got footage that someone's taken on their smartphone of 
that, you know, the bus blowing up or the fight that broke out at the soccer game or whatever it might be. And that allows news, I guess, in some ways to use multiple sources, which is great for them and get that instant access because, you know, you're getting a crew there in time would probably be impossible. But it means for the organisations they don't have 24 hours. Sometimes they have less than an hour. I always say the first hour is really critical and waiting till everything, all your ducks are in a row before you make a noise doesn't actually help because sometimes the story is already out there and then you're playing catch up. So having some sort of, I guess, prepared and rehearsed spokespeople that you've media trained, that you've got ready for this moment is really important. And also making sure that you don't do silence. I say silence breeds suspicion. So we never do no comment, but also sometimes if you just don't hear from the company and that could be for good reasons, because, you know, you're locked in a board meeting and everyone's having a powwow about what we're going to say and who's going to say it, but also there's lawyers involved and other people, but you've just got to put even a holding statement out within that first hour of something happening to your organization. Mm, So you have something that's sort of pre-approved, pre-rehearsed that you look out quickly. Yep, absolutely. And even if it's even if it's just saying, look, we're aware there's an issue or there's something that's happened, or you know, we we're looking at this and we'll you know we'll let you know as soon as we can. Mm. That is better than nothing at all. I mean, the frustration people feel. Think about things like power outages and things like that. People want to know when their power is going to get back, and if they don't have any idea of that, the frustration and the brand damage amplifies, even if it's beyond your control, because you know it's because there's a you know a massive storm and that sort of caused it. So it's kind of the no news is good news is kind of out the window here. It's kind of the lack of Absolutely. It's the opposite <laughs> of that. I think we owe people some explanation, but we also need to be like mindful that what we say and how we say it is really important as well. So not being too robotic, to have a human element to it, to have empathy if they're particularly if it's a tragedy and there's you know, people been injured or lives been lost, you really, you know, or people lost their life savings or their data has been breached and their privacy is at stake. Like I think we need to actually always remember people are the victims and they should be front and centre in the story no matter what, not the company, not its brand reputation at that point. Mm, absolutely. I think I think people quite often forget about the other person. Um, absolutely. They think about themselves and their egos and, you know, their jobs. And I get all that. That's really important. But I guess as a consultant, I love the fact I can come in and say, I'm not internal, but I can tell you as, you know, Joe Blow from Consumer World, this is what I'd want to hear from you right now. And that's the that's the pub test as we call it. The pub test. Oh yeah, I've heard that before. Courier mail test. Yeah. Yes. Does it pass the pub test? If I don't know nothing about your organization and I have had this experience and it's bad what do I need to hear from you and how do you want to make me feel? Mm. And usually it's about being reassuring in that first phase. Are uh, your clients very receptive to that or do it they? depends on the them. client. So I always say to people, like I feel like I'm talking in cliches today, but, you know, you can bring the horses to the water, can you make them drink? I can give them all the advice. I could do a 90-day roadmap of what it looks like from a tactical point of view but they could still, you know, choke when it comes to pressing send or they might feel like, you know, it's too it's too much, it's too emotive. We don't want to talk like that. That's not us. Uh, but I think they don't realise what they think is an overreach will probably land better with the audience than if they become, you know, one line kind of we're investigating and we'll get back to you rather than saying we apologise for the inconvenience. Like even a line like that, some people actually struggle with. 
because they're like, well, that makes us seem like we did something wrong and we don't want to, that's not who we are. We're the best at what we do. And, you know, we we know people and organisations aren't perfect. So you're better off owning that and then actually being able to pick, communicate with people about the why later than keeping people in an information vacuum. Does the legal side of things come in that, that people don't want to apologise, they don't want to say anything that admits fault does that come in a lot to, to the oh, everything gets legal so when I work in a crisis situation we everything I write goes through a legal lens so I end up having to get that back from the lawyers and saying okay we can tell we've lawyered up the way this is written we need to like you know I mean it's even how first responders talk sometimes it's the way they're mm-hmm. trained for example they'll say instead of saying someone has passed away which I know is very morbid that they might say you know, the injuries were not compatible with life. Now, most of us don't want to hear it like that. That seems like we're trying to skirt around the issues. So Mm. taking what has to be said and what can't be said and actually turning it into human speak is part of my job. Oh, yes. That's so true that I think people go default back to jargon and industry terms um, when actually when something bad has happened, you just kind of want to have them acknowledge that it is bad and that there is an impact. Rather Absolutely. Than- rather than kind of going, yeah, to your default, which is like you say is the jargon. And with the lawyers, you're right. They don't want to think, oh, well, they're thinking three steps ahead. They're going to, they're going to sue us. There's going to be compensation. All of those things might be inevitable anyway. So sometimes just saying we're looking into this and we understand this is a distressing time it just takes people down a notch. It actually makes them feel heard, even if really at that stage you're not really engaging, you're just basically putting a, a placeholder there for the communications. Mm, so true. It's wild that people need coaching on that. <laughs> to How me. to be a good human being. Well, I think <laughs> if you're like in a really corporate environment or a large organisation or a big board, it is hard and you see it all the time. You know, sometimes the smartest people in the room don't always have the greatest EQ. It's just not them, but they're fabulous CFOs or they're great at their craft. But for them, you know, they probably feel like a lot of it comes down to it's a reflection of their individual abilities and sometimes that gets in the way of the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. It. I, I think that EQ uh, and communications kind of needs to be the foundation of a sort of every course and every degree. I I know that they have added in stuff around that into, say, medicine because it was the same thing as you're saying that the smartest, most brilliant minds in our country um, quite often don't have the soft skills needed to be able to communicate, take people on a journey, deliver news in a way that is not going to completely get people offside. Absolutely. They call it the bedside manner, you know, that term. Bedside manner, yeah. Yeah, like just, yeah, being not just being sort of robotic about it but actually thinking if I was in the stepping into the shoes of the person I'm communicating to this, how would I want to be told this particular piece of information? Mm, that's a great personal lens to apply to it because you're a human. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we're all human. Outsider. We do share that. <laughs> yeah, and, and like that outsider Outside of perspective being like, I'm a member of the public. This is what I would expect. What's This is what I expect to be reasonable. Yeah, what's reasonable and, you know, what what's going to make us actually sometimes have to fall on our sword a little bit to actually do this. It's a bit uncomfortable. 
But that's important because it is an issue. It is a crisis. And the things I said to people, you're not in crisis mode forever. You know, this is just the worst day of your life in your business. And from here, it's just navigating that path. Only up from here, baby. (laughs) Hopefully, or you don't exist in, you know, that year's time because something happens. But generally speaking, there are no shortcuts to, to this world of crisis comms. Yes. And I can say it's probably, it's, it's evolving continually. You know, we spoke briefly about social media before and, um, the idea of the citizen journalist. (laughs) Yes. I actually remember back, um, I studied public relations, obviously didn't go into it, but, um, I remember one of the topics being, um, public, uh, no citizen journalists, they're going to be the end of journalists and public relations, um, and obviously that has not happened. It's only in, it's sort of given more perspectives on news yeah. stories and things like that. Um, I know that people are currently saying that about ChatGBT and we spoke about ChatGBT kind of briefly when we spoke a couple of weeks yeah. ago um, and we had a pretty interesting conversation about ChatGBT and its effect on public relations. We did. And, look, I have to say I it may be generational and I and look I am Gen X and I'm not a digital native so for me I'm always cautious about technology because I don't need to have all the bright shiny tools straight away so I've kind of sat on the fence a bit I have got my team myself to play around with it a little bit and look what I do like about it for PR is it automates lots of routine tasks so things like creating you know agendas fulfilling reports basic frameworks, if you like, for how to, you know, write a particular campaign or a strategy. And I think more PR professionals are using it in that way to generate ideas in for social media. It's really good for things like that, you know, just Instagram posts, captions, tweets, things like that. Um, But I would say it's a good first draft sometimes for big pieces of work, but it's certainly not yet at the place where I would set and forget. I wouldn't just generate something, scan it and send it off to a client. I'd want to make sure that it's something I've built on and I've added my own expertise to because at the end of the day, it's AI and AI is limited by, I guess, the information that's been given to that to be curated. And there's biases in it. I mean, they've done studies. There's a real male bias. There's real, like I had a client and I played with it recently and all the examples they gave were like American male companies. So Amazon and Jeff Bezos, they had, you know, Elon Musk and Tesla, like that were all the examples. And it's like, wow, this is interesting. So obviously this has been programmed by men. (laughs) There were no female examples in the companies we're talking about um, in terms of culture and values. Yeah, absolutely. So that goes to show that I think we need to review things and obviously we need to spend some time, but it's really good to just, you know, getting you started sometimes and maybe something where you would have had a more junior public relations executive take a few hours to pull it together from scratch. You can do that in a matter of minutes and then maybe then finesse it as a team or give it back to that person to really build on. Yes. Yeah. Definitely not a set and forget. Like you said there, it's, it's so generic and it is based on the inputs that are put into it, which I think is only like till 2021 or something like that. Yes, it's, it's like that's it. So the world sort of, that's two years ago. That's a long time in information land, I think. 
Absolutely. I think things are changing so quickly. That is practically prehistoric. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we sad? That's what we've got to. I mean, the other thing that's coming out and people are talking about is Microsoft's Copilot, which is also for PR yeah. people. Um, it actually featured a press release draft that it then turns into a PowerPoint presentation. And so I'm curious to see how that's going to work. Obviously, that's Microsoft Office competing um, and trying to find its own way. So, yeah, look, I think it's interesting, but I, I I still think it's watch this space. And I think people are kind of thinking, oh, my goodness, you know, it's going to be the end of our of our world. But I just say be careful what you work, wish for because, you know, what are we going to all do and how are we going to use it so that it actually helps us? Because at the end of the day, we want to be able to control it, not have it controlling us, I guess. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I love it. And there's a couple of other tools that have come out, which um, are also AI, so they're not chat GBT. There's one called um, PR Offit, like PRProfit.ai, and then Propel PRM. So um, and I think it's called Propel My PR. And they're a couple that my team are now just having a look at, and it's supposed to help you write with pictures for journalists and media relations stuff. But um, once again, I'm curious to see whether it has a real American skew to it because I think, you know, a lot of the AI has come out of Silicon Valley or similar and has been built with that audience in mind. And, of course, a lot of what I do is Australian-based. So I don't know if that's going to be as relevant um, to how we pitch and, I guess, the journalists and the audiences which we engage with. Yeah, yeah, because the cultural differences um uh, are pretty big, even though we're both, you know, Australia. Yeah, and- absolutely. And and even, even the way speaking. the language we use, I'm not even thinking about the spelling. I'm just thinking about the formality in in America is quite different to how we might be here. Mm, mm-hmm. The vernacular and everything. Yeah, it's it's um it's funny to me to think that people in the PR industry might be feeling scared about ChatGPT when. All our conversation so far has been about this human lens and (laughs) talking to humans and the soft side of things, which is just not something that ChatGPT or um, other AI has has nailed, well, at least yet anyway. Not yet. And that's why I said to people, it's like the first version of anything. You kind of don't want to hang your hat on it. You want to see what's going to happen. But I think quality control is really important. And, um, yeah, I think, yeah, I recently saw a meme. It was something like, you know, if we're worried about chat GPT replacing us in PR or well, the client would have to know what they want. So we're safe. So it's quite funny because like, if, you know, if you've worked in consulting, you'll understand a lot of people don't really know what they want from PR. They just know that they want it. So um, just that nuance and that, I guess, ability to ask more questions than generic questions will be where I think we need to step away from just relying on AI. Yeah. Do you have a sense of what the industry is feeling aside from being scared? Are they seeing it as opportunities as well? There are opportunities. It's interesting because I depends on maybe what your background is. Because I saw an interesting um, post on LinkedIn from one of my colleagues who's a journalist saying um, he's more nervous than probably most people in in wider media, including PR, because um, he probably thinks it's you know journalism's already been really upended because of citizen journalism and social media, and I guess the the rationalisation of major news outlets, particularly in Australia, and less journalists having jobs full time. So he was feeling nervous, but then he's sort of has tried it for a few stories and it just doesn't have analysis and you couldn't really like write political posts based on it or anything really current. So he feels like at the end of the day, news is about what's happening right here, right now in the future. And that yet is not something AI is comfortable with. So I think if PR people think of it from that way as well, we need to be as current as possible. And I don't know that we can just rely on these tools, Um, but it's great to have them. And I certainly don't want to be a naysayer. I just want to say, watch this space. 
Definitely. It's still so new and, and people who say that they're experts in AI. <laughs> it's been around since November last year, but it's like saying, yeah, I've done, I've done a PhD in it in seven months. It's, it's, I mean, unless you've built it yourself and you've kind of been part of the evolution, it's hard to say that you could become an expert in it so quickly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, even the developers themselves have no idea which, well, they have some idea, but they don't know the extent of what it means for the future. So yeah, definitely a word of caution to anyone who's listening to any AI experts. It's no one's quite an expert yet. It's, it's yeah. still you a, need, need to do oh, your 10,000 hours as, as, as Malcolm Gladwell said to become an expert. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so to changing tact a little bit now, um, you have a podcast and I've listened to a couple of episodes called, it's called the politics of everything. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So I started that podcast in 2017 when podcasts were pretty new and the early episodes literally sound like I'm in a concrete bunker because we didn't have all the fabulous tech and platforms we do now and I didn't really know what I was doing. I've, having been a journalist, I've always just delivered the information, but I've had teams of people, you know, when I worked in TV who made me sound good, look good, all those things. So it was a real kind of okay, I want to do this, but I don't know how. And I sort of learned along the way and the politics of everything, it's not about politics. It's just an ability to talk about anything from money to mindfulness, motherhood to secularism, to anything that really someone feels like they're either passionate about or an expert in. And a lot of people are not household names. I've had some fairly famous people on, but really it's about elevating ideas and having a conversation and getting to know people. And they're all the things I loved about being a journalist. So I feel like it's so much fun. And for a long time, I didn't have a huge audience um, that's built over time. And now I've got a sponsor and it's kind of, you know, it's monetized and everything. But even if I wasn't paid a cent, like I wasn't for many years, I'd still do it because I just actually love it. I really love it. So I think that for me is, um, is sometimes you feel like you have to feed the beast. And, you know, I do do weekly shows, which we've talked about, and I do take a summer break. But it's really amazing the amount of people that it reaches and I just love connecting with people and interviewing people like I think anyone who has been a journalist will always say that's the best part of it it's not writing the stories and seeing your name in a byline or your face on tv it's actually getting to the heart of a topic or an issue and I think in 30 minutes I try and do that in a way in which the audience finds interesting yeah so is it your creative outlet do you think it is my creative outlet and it's sort of yeah, it's something where I feel like even though some of the questions are the same questions every week, I don't know what people are going to say. We don't do a practice run. We just see where it goes and half the people, if not more, I've never met in real life. So you're really creating rapport and tapping into their human side within a couple of seconds and and then having to really, I guess, extract from them stuff that's not just boring key messages and fl flogging their products and services, but it's really about something a little bit deeper than that. And I, I find it creative, but it also gives me so much energy. So it's probably, I get as much from it as I guess I give to my audience. Oh, that's fantastic. I think it's great to have those little things inside or outside of work that you can, you know, you can do that will give you all that energy back and just make you even bigger and better to keep <laughs> continue on with your life. Um, but yeah, you said <laughs> you do one weekly. Um, that's a huge amount of that's a huge amount of work. How do you um how do you come up with having a unique topic for every single episode on a weekly basis? It can be difficult because you can find like people pitch to you 
ideas and like oh no we did that one in 2018 sorry like but how about this so I get so I get a lot of pictures now and so it's about me and my team going what are the things that people are really interested in now and we've actually revisited a couple of topics because things move on like if I did something about cryptocurrency now versus when it you know in 2017 I think we did an episode when it was all kind of a bit new and shiny for people it would be a very different conversation so I'm not adverse to going back to individuals or to topics but I do think it's got to have enough breathing space which we call it in journalism it's why we don't run the same story so close together um but also there is so much in the world like you know, there's just topics which are coming up all the time, even things like purpose at work. We didn't even talk about that six years ago. Now that's, for example, one of the topics we might be doing. Yes, I guess you've got sort of unlimited scope of things to talk about. Absolutely. And I'm so glad I never did a PR podcast because I think I'd do 12 episodes and I'd be bored and the audience would be bored. So I also (laughs) made it as creative as possible when I came up with the idea. (laughs) Yeah, imagine that. Well, it's 12th episode. I've run out of things to talk about. Start back at episode one again. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, how do you stay motivated with it? I, I know you said it gives you energy, but it is hard to do that as well as, you know, managing your regular business and, and your coaching and all the other things that you do. How do you find time to actually get your podcast done? I do what I think you've tapped into, which is called batching. So I'll have podcast days where I'll just do five back-to-back and that'll be five weeks of shows and that tends to be blocked out in my diary and I'm in the zone and we just do it. And that allows me, I'm always someone who likes, I hate being last minute. So for me, I always do that ahead. And I learned really early on not to rely on, you know, guests booking in and them sticking to it because things happen in their life and mine. And then I've had bits where, oh my goodness, I do not have a guest for this week calling in a favor the day before and asking my poor producer to stay up till midnight, pulling it together is not ideal. So I think, um, I think about it, I have thinking time blocked out for the show as well, but really I only spend about on average about two or three hours a week on it. I have a podcast editor, I have social media people, um, I've been able to build a bit of a lean team that really I just do what I love and then they make it all sound and, and look amazing. That's that's a good way of doing it. <laughs> and so tell me, what would your advice be for someone who um, is looking to have something like what your podcast is to you, a little bit of a creative outlet that can give them a little bit of energy um, on the side of their regular work? I would think about what you like doing as a kid. And I and another hobby I have is horse riding, which is not necessarily creative per se, but it's really mindful and I just love it. And I only got back into that a few years ago and I was like, I can't just do things that are making money and just, you know, furthering my education and all those pieces which you feel like you're always upskilling. I would say think about what you love doing as a kid, what what brought you joy. Is It might not be the exact same thing, but it could be painting or writing or drawing or doing something that, actually scares you a bit too that you're really really bad at I think that's really humbling but it actually allows you to be more creative because you start from scratch and you have no expectations of yourself you know you're not doing it because you have to or because you know it makes you makes you an income you're actually doing it because it means something to you that's a that's a really hard thing to shake off I think is you know we're we're so trained to just keep doing the things that are purposeful strategic making us money Sometimes you just got to do things just because they make you happy. Absolutely. And I've got friends who, yeah, maybe it's a midlife thing. We've all just got these new hobbies. But if we talk about them, we go, oh, yeah, as a kid, I quite like 
drawing or I was really good at art. But then, of course, I did the sensible thing and became an accountant. And they just, it doesn't leave you that stuff. It's just, it's just sometimes dormant. And I think we need to be able to, you know, be like a little kid again and just be free and not worry about the rules. Yeah, I think it's so great that there are so many classes out there now aimed at adults. You know, there's paint and sip, there's pottery, yeah. there's all sorts of things, even sports for people who have never done never it. Never done sport. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, ah, I just think it's great. Like it's um, the world's your oyster. You know, you've got so many things to choose from. It's about just getting out there and trying them. Absolutely. And like what takes you an hour or two away from what you do actually makes you more creative. It just reminds me of that whole, I love walking meetings, you know, not sitting at my desk. If I have a grab a coffee with a client or a staff member and go for a walk, often the ideas are just so much better. You know, I get my best ideas, not when I'm sitting there with a blank screen going, okay, let's do a brainstorm. It doesn't work like that. And I think hobbies tap into a different side of your brain. Yes. Definitely. I found that the other day we were kayaking and in the middle of the lake and I was like, I have the best idea. I didn't <laughs> bring a notepad no. with me. This sucks. No, you're going to have to like commit that to memory when you get yeah. out of that kayak. Yeah. <laughs> but this true is, you know, you move your body around, you let your mind wander a little bit and all these different things come out. So even though the actual, the actual activity is probably not furthering your business, the, it's helping your mind do it and it and that will help further your business or, you know, whatever else you want to achieve. I agree, absolutely. Mm. Oh, well, thank you so much, Amber, for talking to me today. I think we sort of, we went around the world a little bit. We sure did. We weren't <laughs> sure we get to it all, but we did. <laughs> and it's uh, very interesting to hear your takes on, you know, chat GBT and PR and, the, and crisis communications. Um, so, yeah, thank you for sharing that with us. My pleasure. And uh, also thank you to everyone who has tuned in to Creativity Uncovered today. I really hope that this episode has helped you think a little laterally um, and, and, you know, go out there and find a hobby. I also hope that it helps you summon creativity the next time that you need it. If you've made it this far, a huge thank you for your support and tuning into today's episode. Creativity Uncovered has been lovingly recorded on the land of the Cubby Cubby people, and we pay our respect to elders past, present, and emerging. This podcast has been produced by my amazing team here at Crisp Communications, and the music you just heard was composed by James Gatling. If you liked this episode, please do share it around and help us on our mission to unlock more creativity in this world. You can also hit subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episode releases.